Hey, we're going through, if you're a visitor, First Samuel um, this year. I'm not going to give you the context this morning because every speaker who has come up here gives us a background of what's happened before. Um, so I'm kind of not going to do that this time because we're mostly up to speed, I hope, unless you're a visitor. But First Samuel, um, and we're in chapter 25 uh, this morning, which is an interesting chapter, one that I mistook as I was giving out the titles. The title that I was given or gave myself this morning is Samuel Dies. Samuel Dies. We're going to read the first verse of chapter 25 and 1 Samuel. Three words at the start. Then Samuel died. Oh, great. I thought there'd be a wee bit more detail in it than that. But it carries on. And the Israelites mourned for him. And he went and he was buried in his home of Ramah. David arose and went down to the, to the wilderness of Paran. So you can picture me reading this. And as I read this, a thought came to my mind. I don't understand what has just gone on here. And I don't get it. You know, you read the Bible, I'm not talking about theology here, but just reading the Bible and going through it, you think, this is how I would do it. This is how I would write this story. And it's completely different as you read through God's Word. It leaves and puts in details and leaves out details that you want to hear. And it puts in details which I'm like, oh, I didn't really need to know that, but there it is. And so, as I read this, and I gave my title to myself about a year ago, beads of sweat start pouring from my brow as I think to myself, what am I going to speak about in three words? Then Samuel died. And so, yes, panic came in with that one verse. And it's funny, because after this, there are 43 verses on David getting angry because he has no food for him and his men. And Samuel being such a huge part of the Old Testament, two books named after him, First and Second Samuel. And when he dies, there's basically three words. We know where he was buried and that he died. And so for me, I was like, I don't understand that. I don't get it. Why isn't there more details? Especially when you're speaking on him on a Sunday morning. You need more details. As I read this, I, I had a thought. It was, it was probably a bad thought, but I had this thought, and you can imagine it with me. Just imagine I wasn't here this morning, and we go through the songs. Someone else speaks. And I thought of my mate Andrew Linton gets up at the end to do the notices. He struts down and he comes up and we all know Andy does one thing. He'll grab the microphone and bring it way down. <laughs> He'll look over his glasses, <laughs> welcome everyone, maybe tell us about health and safety, which was my job. He welcomes and he says to you, I have two notices, two notices. 
Gary, your pastor, has died. That's the first one. He's being buried in Christchurch. And he leaves it there. And then he goes, my second notice is finance. And he takes 20 minutes on finance, loving every minute of it. Now, I hope you would think to yourself, that is a wee bit odd. (laughs) Now, that was me just imagining what it's like when I read this chapter. You know, if I had died and Andy announces that, surely you'd want to know a bit more information. What did I die of? Where was I when I died? Was there any last words? Who was with me? Did I suffer? Were the elders beside me? How's Kath and the kids going? When's the funeral? Who's taking the funeral? And of course, for all these young people, the most important thing is their food at the funeral. And so details would have been fantastic, and that's what I'm sure you'd want to hear. Not that your pastor's dead and he's getting buried at Christchurch and move on, but that's the feeling I get as I read this in this book of Samuel. It's, it's labelled after him, it's named after him. And so we have no idea what he died of, We don't know even the reaction of people like King Saul. What was Saul's reaction to Samuel's death? He was anointed by him. What was David's reaction on Saul's death? Nothing. We don't know. He took off to Paran. And we don't see the details. We do know that Israel mourned. In other words, he was known throughout all of Israel. But then the time comes, he dies And we have three words about it, basically. To me, very odd. And as I thought about it, even though it was surprising that the death notice, if you like, of Samuel is so short, with no details, he was a man who had a great role in Israel's history. He was a judge, he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was an anointer of kings. Remarkable life. But as usual, we've got to step back and we've got to look at what this book is about. It is God's book. And the big storyline of this book is him and his redemptive plan for you and me. This book is about God, not about prophets, not about priests. They're in there, and there's details, and there's kings, and we know quite a bit. But as we step back, the big picture is God and what he is like and what he is going to do and what his character is and what his plan is for you and me. And so... As I thought, I thought, no, hold on. It shouldn't be written differently. It's written perfectly because it's God's story. And then secondly, I thought, I thought maybe the death details are not important, but the life details are. And we've got enough details about Samuel's life and what he did and how he honoured the Lord in his life 
Sure, it's great to die well. I'm sure Samuel died well. But it's more importantly to live well, to live for Christ. And that's a message for me and you, that how are we living? If we were to be in this book, which we are in a book, because we're in God's big story, what is our life like? How would it be written? What are the details of what we are doing for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus? And so very sparse on Samuel's death. But lucky for me, there is 43 other verses and another story which I'm going to go into. And we're going to read about this story. And what I'm going to do is not read all of it because it will take too long. So bear with me because I'm going to jump and miss quite a bit. So after this shock for Israel, as their judge and priest and prophet dies, now comes a story of David. Now there was a man in verse 2. He was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. This man's name was Nabal. He had a wife named Abigail. She was a woman of great understanding and beautiful in appearance. But Nabal was harsh and evil in his doings. David sent 10 young men Go to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name, and you shall say this to him. And verse 7, your shepherds, sorry, I'll, I'll start again in verse 6 and finish it. This is what you'll say to him who lives in prosperity. Peace to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have sharers. Your shepherds were with us, and did not, we did not hurt them. Ask your young men this, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favour in your eyes. And we have come on the feast day. Please, give whatever comes from your hand and to your servants and to your son, David. Verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants and said this, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat and all that I have and killed for my sharers and give it to the men I do not even know or where they are from? So David's young men turned back and they told David Nabal's words. Verse 13. David said to his men, put on your swords and I will put on my sword. And there was about 400 men with David, 200 stayed behind to look after the supplies. Now one of the young men, this is not David's man, this was another one who worked for Nabal, one of the young men told Abigail. But the men were very good, he said to, they were very good to us. They did not hurt us, nor did we miss anything as long as they accompanied with us. When we were in the fields, they treated us well. They were a wall to us, both night and day. All the time they were with us, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what, Abigail, you are going to do. For your husband Nabal is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. 
Then Abigail made haste, and she took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep ready and dressed, five sheaves of uh, roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on to the donkeys. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Down to 23, now, when Abigail saw David coming her way, she dismounted quickly from the donkey and she fell on her face before David and she bowed down to the ground. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so he is, for Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Verse 28, please forgive the trespasses of your maidservant, for the Lord certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because the Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is found in you. Sorry, no evil is found in you all your days. Down to verse 32, as she keeps talking to David. And David listens to her in verse 32, and David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me this day. Blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, from avenging myself by my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you have hurried and come to me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought to him, and, she said, and he said to her, go in peace, your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Abigail goes back. She sees Nabal, but he was drunk. And so in verse 37, so it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal that his wife Abigail told him the things that she had done. And in hearing this, his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. And when it happened, after about ten days, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So when David heard that Nabal had died, he said, Blessed is the Lord, who has pleaded the case before my reproach, and from the hand of Nabal has kept his servant from doing evil. David sent us to you. He goes back and, and sees Abigail with his men. David has sent us to you and asked you to become his wife. And then lastly, in verse 42, So Abigail rose in haste and rode the donkey, attended by the five, five of her maidservants, and she followed the messages of David and became his wife. So quite a big story about food after the little story about Samuel dying. What is the background here of this story? Well, King Saul, he is still king. He is still going well. He is still in charge of the fighting men of Israel. He is still the commander-in-chief. And David is out in the wilderness of Paran, and he has about 600 men, basically guerrilla fighters, if you like, out there helping shepherds, helping landowners, protect their land and their sheep and their stock. And so in doing this and protecting this, Nabal is basically David's employer. He is the one that should be paying David for this protection of his shepherds and of his stock 
and offers sharers and so on. And so it was like an unwritten rule that it, when the time comes and the sharing's been done, that the owner of the land would give something back to the protector of his stock and his shepherds. And this is the case here. They have been protecting maybe far more than just one person's stock, but a lot. And so he comes and David sends his men, ten young men, go to Nabal and ask, hey, could you give us payment for that protection? But there is a problem. Nabal is not only a fool, but he is stingy as well. And he doesn't want to pay. And so through this story, we have three main characters. We have Nabal. We know a wee bit about him. Not only is he a fool, but he is a rich fool. The Hebrew word here for rich is heavy. Heavy. Which we get the word from loaded. If I say to my wife, you are heavy, that would be an insult. But if I said, wow, you are loaded, would know what that means, that she is wealthy. And so Nabal was heavy, loaded in wealth. We know in verse 3, he was harsh though. And in his dealings with men, he was evil. He wasn't a nice man. On the other hand, we have Abigail. It is, she is the complete opposite of her husband. Not only beautiful in looks, but intelligent as well. Amazing woman. And then we have, of course, David, who is trained as a fighting man. He is a soldier. He is a commander. He is the anointed king to be, David. And we can tell that David and his men did a good job from verses 15 to 16. They took their job seriously, very seriously. In fact, the men and the shepherds, and the shepherd more than likely who goes to Abigail said, they were like a wall to us. Day and night, no one got through. Nothing got stolen. No one got hurt. And so these are the three main characters as we start off. As we start this story, we know that this story basically is a story of conflict. There is conflict between David and Nabal, and yet they have never met, and they haven't seen each other, and they haven't spoken to each other. And yet the story is about them two and the conflict. One won't pay, and one's going to pay. And so this is what we have. But as we start off, right from the start, we see in verse 3, that there is conflict between the husband and the wife. There has to be, as we can see. The woman, Abigail, well, yep, she was intelligent, she was brainy and beautiful looking in appearance. The man, Nabal, was harsh and evil. It makes you wonder how they got married. You know, did he win her or was it family set this up and then boom, you've got to marry him. He is wealthy. But we don't know, no details on this. But their temperaments were different. Their behavior was different. Their attitudes were different. 
Their philosophies were different. And the way they treated people was also different. So right in verse 3, we can tell there is conflict between husband and wife. And then from verses 7 and 8, David sends 10 of his young men to go and get something to eat. Probably quite a bit to eat. Now listen in their approach, how they approach Nabal. It's not heavy-handed, it's not rough, it's not demanding. In fact, in verse 8 they say, please, just give us whatever comes from your hand. It's, 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 it's not, look, we want half your stock and hurry up. It's just whatever you want to give us, we'll be satisfied with that. Nabal's response to this request proves he was named correctly. A fool. He pretends he doesn't even know who David is. He doesn't know whose son he is. And that's a big problem. That's a lie there because most of Israel knew who David was. Abigail knew who David was. And a businessman like Nabal would have definitely known who David was. His response in verse 11 shows he wasn't... A only a fool, but he was self-centered. There are six times in verse 11 he calls to himself. He says this, Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my sharers and give to the men when I do not know where they come from? Six times. I, my, my, I, my, I. Great, in one verse, what a man. So he was self-centered as well. And so David's men, you know, they don't fight, they don't say anything. We'll just go back and tell our chief in command, David. And they do. And this is where the story breaks loose. David hears the men's story and he literally explodes with anger. He is not a happy man. In fact, we can see that he overreacted. He tells his men, and I wonder this picture, as the ten men come back, and he says, right, grab your swords and put them on. I'm putting mine on. And maybe just the ten put their swords on, and David. And he goes, no, 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 400. 400 men put their swords on, and he leaves 200 behind. You can tell that he is not going to, by the time he has put his sword on, to have a civil discussion with Nabal. And secondly, we know he is not going to sit down around the table with 400 men as well with swords to try and sort out a solution to this problem we have. No, you put a sword on and 400 men, you're going in. But it's a bit of an overkill, isn't it? It's like killing a cockroach with a shotgun. It's kind of like, you'll kill it, no problem, but you'll have a foot-long hole in your wall. And that would be an overkill, wouldn't it? Literally. You got him, but oh, now we need a plaster and to fix the hole. And so David here has lost control. His anger has taken control of him. I thought to myself as I looked up, 
in Google, what is anger? Most of us should know what it is or experienced it. The definition for anger is this. It is a learned reaction to frustration in, what you, uh, in which you behave in ways you would rather not. It is a learned reaction to frustration. Over time, if you let it go, you learn to actually get angrier and angrier and behave in ways that you would rather not. It's funny, why would we get angry then if we would behave in a way that we would rather not? But we do. Severe anger, it says, is a form of insanity. Hmm. You are insane whenever you are not in control of your behaviour. Therefore, when you are angry and out of control, you are insane. Now, I can concur to this. I remember when we came back, my wife and I, Kath, from our honeymoon, um, my father-in-law had lent me his lawnmower because I hadn't bought one yet, and it didn't start, and it was a heap of junk. And so I pulled it, the cord, 38 times. My wife was fixing up the house, and so... I'm wondering what her kind of thinking would have been as she saw me pick it up and I was going to throw it in the creek. Now, think of that. Okay, I'm angry. But that's insane because what would that benefit throwing it in the creek? Because there was a creek out the back, no fence, and I had it above my head going to throw it in and Kath's probably thinking, oh, okay, this is who I married. <laughs> and he has an anger problem. But the insane thing is, is when I throw, it's like I was treating it as something or some kind of animal because it would hurt it. But throwing it in the creek meant I'd just have to go and get it out of the creek. And it would mean that it would definitely not work anymore. And so I can understand that when you're angry and you go into severe anger and you lose it, you're out of control. David and his reaction was insane. Now, please don't get me wrong. David is a remarkable man, was a remarkable man. Anointed as king in chapter 16. Why? Because he had a heart after God. In chapter 17, he was not only a fighter of bears and lions, but of giants as well, the Philistine. And in chapter 24, last week we heard from Jono. And he talked about the graciousness and the merciful David in the cave. And so he is. He is an incredible man. And don't forget, he's only young here, maybe 18, 19. An incredible man. But here we see if it wasn't for a woman intercepting David and his men, more than likely he would have been guilty of murder. And even a step before that, in verse 14, a young man, it's a young man who comes to Abigail and tells her, there's a problem coming. We know who David is. We know what he's like. He is a fighting machine. And so Abigail decides, I will act. Why? Because she is intelligent, unlike her husband, not only in wisdom, but in her approach as well. 
We know she gathers up all this food, maybe five or six donkeys worth, and she takes off to see David. But as I say, not only in her wisdom, but her approach. Look in verse 24 or verse 23. She meets David and she says, and it says, Now Abigail saw David. She dismounts quickly from the donkey. She falls on her face before David and she bows down to the ground. In verse 24, she says this. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let the iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maid servant. Three things that stand out as Abigail approaches David. Her tact, her faith, and her loyalty. Her tact, her faith, and her loyalty. Her tact, she fell on her face. Six times in her conversation with David, she calls herself his maidservant. May your maidservant be allowed to speak. May your maidservant Just grab your ear for a little time. Six times. Eight times she calls David her Lord. My Lord, my Lord. In other words, my master. I am your maidservant. I am lowly. Don't forget she is part owner of all Nabal's inheritance, everything he owns. She is a rich lady as well. But she meets David in humility. And that was her tact. And then her faith in verses 26 to 30. She is literally saying, David, I am looking at the next king. Your throne will endure. In other words, I know all about you. I know that you're the anointed one. That Samuel anointed. I know you're the son of Jesse. I know what you did to the Philistine army. And so she has faith. I'm looking at the next king. King. And then in verse 31, her loyalty to him. When all the dust is settled, she could say, I'm on your side, and because of that, could you remember me? When all the dust is settled between you and Saul, could you remember me? Because I'm on your side, David. Look at David's response. Verse 32. He says this, after listening to quite a long conversation, he says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who has sent you to meet me. Blessed is your advice. Blessed are you because you have kept me this day from committing bloodshed. Isn't it any wonder that God chose David, a man after his own heart? Such a teachable man. What he has done in his life so far is incredible. He should be walking around with his chest out and, you know, so proud of what he can do. But no. A stranger and a woman stops him, asks him to listen, and he does. This is why God teaches him and has picked him and has anointed him. Ready one minute with his sword, and he sees a woman he has never met or ever seen and listens to her without interrupting. I thought as I read that and thought of David, 
Am I like that? Or have I got someone like her in my life that can teach me as well and I would listen? Not someone who'll stab me in the back, but someone who'll stab me in the front to my face. We all need a person or persons like that. I meet a man once a week in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And he is one of them men to me. He's not an elder, but he is a mentor to me that will tell me where I'm going wrong, what I'm doing, and encourage me. And then every two months, I have another guy I meet. And he will admit when he stabs me in the front. He says, this is pride, he said to me one day. Gary, you're, you're prideful. And that hurt when someone says that to you. But it was right. Have we got someone like Abigail in our lives? We need them, and we need to listen to them. So David calls off the raid. Abigail goes back. Nabal's drunk. She tells him the next morning, and basically God judges him, and he dies 10 days later. What can we learn from this story? What can we learn? Well, firstly, three things, very quickly. That God is in control. God is in control. David hurdling down the mountain. He might have been hurdling up a mountain. We just say down. And he's stopped by a woman. All along, God had this in control. Yes, he, he trusted in God when fighting bears, fighting lions, fighting giants. Why didn't he trust God when he needed food? And so it is with you and me, isn't it? We trust God for our eternal security. Everything that we have, our our whole eternal life to come or everlasting life to come, we have trusted God in that because what what he has done in his son, the Lord Jesus. And yet sometimes we don't actually trust him with, with our job, with our partner, with with our move, with with anything. We have to have control, but God is in control. And so we need to trust him. Secondly, whenever you realize there's nothing you can do, try waiting on him. Try waiting. If David would only have taken his own advice from Psalm 40, he would have been okay. I waited patiently for the Lord, it says in Psalm 40, and he inclined to me. And he heard my cry. He also sought me out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Wait patiently for the Lord. Trust him that he will work out something for good and his glory. Lastly, who is the hero of this story? Who is the hero of this story? You've got to pick one. Was it David or was it Abigail? For me, as I look at it, there is a hero in here that we know nothing about, and he's found in verse 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail the things that had happened. More than likely a shepherd. No name. No genealogy, don't know his parents. He's got no job description even in this verse. He is the hero. 
He summed up what was going on and he takes action. Do you know what? As I looked at it, the Bible is full of these people that we do not know their name. John 6 and verse 9, Jesus feeding the 5,000, the disciples say, tell everyone to go home. We got no food for them. It's late. What does Jesus do? Has anyone got anything to eat? Andrew brings what? Calls a young lad. A young lad. Five loaves, two fish. We know nothing about him. And Jesus feeds more than 5,000 people. An unsung hero with no name. And it just keeps going through, isn't it? Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman. Lord, please cast out a demon of my daughter. And he keeps to and fro. I've come from Israel, not for the dogs. And she says them wonderful words. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus is amazed at her and says, go, your faith has made your daughter well. The poor woman in Luke 7, we know nothing about her, that she was a widow. And Jesus teaches, it's probably one of the biggest verses that we teach on giving. She gave out of her poverty. She gave more than everybody combined. And then in Luke 21, the woman at Jesus' feet in Simon's house, we know nothing much about her, that she has loose morals and she is a woman. But she is a hero. She worships Jesus. And Jesus says to Simon, as you see this woman, she has forgiven much because she loves much. And so this should encourage us that even though we're not Billy Grahams, we're not David Platts, we're not Francis Chans in this world, well, I'm not. And yet, God can use you. Young man, young woman, elderly or not, God can use you. And you can be a person in his big story that if you could read it, it's just like, oh, and this young man said this, or this young woman did this. And you can be part of his plan. So please, as we look at this story, be encouraged that God can use any one of us as we walk with him, for him and near him uh, this day and this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this story. And though, Lord, we have two stories here, one with no detail and one with so much, we just want to praise you for your word. And I just pray I've honoured you in your word that I've spoke what you wanted to, the people to hear. For our lives that we're alive now matter and you know all about them, and you know our thoughts and our very hearts, Lord, help us to understand that we can be a part of your, your story, the big picture. Though we may never become famous, but we can have um, this amazing part in your story of being used by you, which is incredible. And so... As I even talked about them people, them, them woman, that man who has, and that we young lad who we don't know the name, let us take courage that you do. You do know the names. You do know the person. You do know the lives of that person. And you do with us as well. Because you are interested in our lives.
So, Father, help us to live well. Help us to die well as well. We give you thanks in the Saviour's name. Amen. 